they'll be able to watch the sermon and not see you, which uh, you probably would be okay with. So we're excited about that. Uh, if you have your Bibles this morning, I'm going to invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 12. If you've got your story with you this morning, your story Bible, go ahead and turn to page 13. That's where we're going to be this morning. And we're going to be moving forward uh, with the story and God's relentless pursuit of us. But before we do that, let's just pray. Let's invite the Lord's presence to be over these next 25, 30 minutes, because I think the Lord has some really important things that he wants to get across to us this morning. We don't want this to be just an exercise in Bible study. We want this to be a time that we get to spend with the Lord as he speaks to us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you, Lord, that each and every story in your word teaches us something about who you are and what you want us to do in response to that. I pray, Lord, that we would see you in a greater light this morning, see you for who you are, your goodness, your grace, and your love. And I pray also, Lord, that we would see today what our response should be to that goodness and to that grace and to that love. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I, I have to tell you, last week I was absolutely thrilled with where we left, the idea that God is in a relentless pursuit of us, that, that the rest of the story from Genesis on is about God's relentless pursuit of you and me. But we also left in a little bit of a sad place. And the little bit of the sad place was we recognized that human beings didn't necessarily have the capacity, the ability, or the humility to uh, fix this problem that we had with God, and God was going to have to do it. But we also didn't get any indication of what we need to do, any indication of what our role is in restoring this broken relationship with God I've been on a number of projects in my life that I realized it was far beyond my capacity to, to do that project. Uh, most of my home projects start that way, and, and then they end with the expertise of someone else. I remember years ago, uh, we as young adults, we took a missions trip to Mexico, and we, and we pulled up to this site that was just a hollowed-out shell of a building, and we were told that we were going to lay the foundation for a church. And I thought to myself, none of us are Masons, none of us know how to do this, this is going to be a disaster. So the first thing they have us do is get wheelbarrows full of dirt and rock and busted pieces of concrete and said, fill in the base of this church with this stuff. Oh, okay, we'll do that. And so we, we exerted a little bit of muscle uh, on that, and we, we filled in the base of this church. And then, then we were told, all right, go get buckets of water and start mixing that gravel and that cement and that water together. We're going we're gonna to lay a foundation. And once, oh, okay, we'll do that. You know, because once again, the 13 young adults who were on that trip really didn't have the ability or the capacity to build a foundation for a church. But there were people there, a wonderful mason and, and, and a wonderful church leader who had done this before, who had the ability to lay that foundation, but we got the privilege of partnering with them. You see, we didn't have the expertise, the ability, the capacity to know how to do that, but shovelful after shovelful of hand-mixed cement, we got a foundation laid for that church. Many of you have been to that church, haven't you, in Jalisco, Mexico, where people are getting saved each and every week, and God's doing incredible work. It's really cool to be able to partner in something where, where you don't necessarily have the capacity to do it yourself, but there is a role for you to play. 
And today we're going to talk in the lower story about the role that God has for us to play as we talk about the upper story of God building a nation. God's going to build a nation and in a way to further his relentless pursuit of us. But we're also going to receive an indication today in the lower story of what it is that God desires us to do. Let's talk for just a moment before we read in Genesis 12 about the state of where we're at in the story, the state of the story. We know from Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3, story chapter 1, that our relationship with God is broken. We recognize through Genesis 1 through 11 that human beings can't or won't fix it, don't have the capacity, the ability, or humility to make it right. We understand that God in the midst of this still wants to bless us. Remember God making the first sacrifice on behalf of human beings. We saw that last week. But the question we want to ask today is what are we to do? And hopefully through the person of Abram, Abe, Abraham, Father Abraham, we're going to figure out how we get to partner with God in this fix. Are you in Genesis chapter 12? Are you on page 13? Here we go. The Lord had said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who blesses you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. So Abraham went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abraham was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. He took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, and all the possessions that they had accumulated and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. Through this man Abraham, and I have to confess to you, I will probably say Abraham the rest of the time. Uh, I'm used to saying Abraham, even though for the early parts of these passages, we see the name Abram. God changes his name a little bit, a little bit later, but we see that God is going to build a nation. The purposes of building that nation is to bless or to save the world. Yet God chooses to start with sort of a, a nobody, a rancher, a herdsman, somebody named Abram, somebody whose, whose name means exalted father. He's going to use this Abraham to somehow create a people through whom he is going to communicate who he is, what he's all about, his salvation, and what we are to do about it. He's going to do that through Abraham's descendants. He requires Abraham to get moving from Haran to Canaan. And you'll, and you'll talk about that this week in your life groups. The move from Haran to Canaan. But God says some specific things to Abram. And I, I want us to look at this. And I want us to, to get into this a little bit here in chapter 12. God says, Abram, I'm going to bless you. Now that's a good thing. You want to be blessed by God. I tell people all the time, there's nothing so good as the favor of the Lord. You, you want God working on your behalf. But then he says to Abraham, oh, and by the way, you will be a blessing. You specifically, Abram, are going to be a blessing. Now, we don't exactly know how, right now, how Abraham himself is going to be a blessing. We sort of have our minds wrapped around the concept that his descendants and all the people who will become Israel will communicate who God is to us, but how will Abraham specifically be a blessing to the world? Hopefully we can answer that question today. We also find out that Abraham is going to be blessed by God, and the people who bless Abraham, God will bless. So it's good, you want to bless Abraham. But the people who curse Abraham, God will curse. You say, well, that seems pretty severe. 
And it does seem severe on the face of it, except if you know anything about biblical archaeology, moving to the land of Canaan was not an easy move. A single herdsman with his household moving to the land of Canaan, that's not something that you want to do. It'd be like if I looked at you today and said, hey, leave your home in Stowe, Ohio, we're going to move to Syria right now. You don't want to move to Syria. Syria is a volatile place. Well, Abraham was moving to a volatile place, but God says, don't worry, Abraham. I'm going to bless those who look after you, and I'm going to go after those who want to hurt you. But most importantly, we see that through Abraham and his descendants, God is going to bless all the nations of the earth. Or some believe in Hebrew, the better way to render this is all the families of the earth. It's a little bit more granular than nations. It's talking about clans and people groups. God is going to somehow communicate who he is, his goodwill towards humanity through Abraham and his descendants. Somehow through Abraham, God is going to fix this. But he wants Abraham to partner with him. Abraham's got to do some things, and the first thing Abraham has to do is move from his cushy spot to a not-so-cushy spot. You say, why is that? Why does God make him move? Why, why can't God just allow Abraham to become king of Haran? Couldn't that have happened? Couldn't he have worked his way up the socioeconomic ladder to become a person of influence, and God could have saved right from there? Well, hopefully we can answer the question of why God had him move because I believe in that question is the answer of two different questions that we're asking today. One, how is Abraham himself particularly going to be a blessing? And two, what is it that we need to do to partner with God in this new thing that's going on as God relentlessly pursues us? To answer that question, we have to turn a little bit further forward to Genesis chapter 15, verse 1. Or if you have your story Bibles, you can turn to page 15. We're going to see 13 years later that not much good has happened to Abraham and his family. There's been famine. There's been fleeing to Egypt. There's been a falling out with his nephew Lot. There's been some bad things going on in Abraham's life. There's, There's been some sad things going on in Abraham's life. He even gets into a war in order to save his nephew Lot. Lots going on, but not lots about how Abraham's sort of going to be this blessing or how his people are going to bless the world. And there's a big problem that Genesis 15 is going to make us aware of. Look at verse 1. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. He says, do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abraham said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, you've given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him, this man will not be your heir, but a son who is of your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and said, look up at the sky, count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Abraham believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. Thirteen years later, nothing really good had happened for Abraham. Yes, he had won the war to help his nephew Lot survive, but not, good, not a lot of good had happened in Abraham's life, and we are made aware of the biggest problem for Abraham's descendants blessing the earth. He has none. No descendants whatsoever. I've always thought, poor Eliezer of Damascus. Poor guy. He probably sees Abraham in his mid-80s and goes, yeah, yes. Splendid, splendid. Good, good. One of these days, Abraham's going to kick the bucket, and this will all be mine. Well, 
Not so fast. God has promised that through the descendants of Abraham, he is going to bless the earth. Here's the problem. Abraham's old. And his wife is past childbearing years. Hebrews is not generous to Abraham. It says Abraham's body was as good as dead. (laughs) I'm sure he got a hold of the writer of Hebrews in heaven and asked him why he had to write something like that. But, But we understand that men can have children late into life, so it wasn't necessarily Abraham who was the problem here. His wife Sarah, or Sarai as we know her earlier in this story, she... She's past childbearing years. She won't be having a child by Abraham. And we find out in the story that they try to concoct a plan in order for Abraham to have descendants, but God does not accept that plan. God's not interested in doing things that are easy, it seems. He makes Abraham leave Haran. Things don't go necessarily well for Abraham and his family. And yet God says, an heir from your own body will make it so that there will be as many stars in the sky as your descendants, if you can count them. That's what God says to Abraham. Abraham tries to fix it. Sarai tries to fix it. They can't through an illegitimate son, if you will, named Ishmael. God goes back to them and says, you don't understand. I'm going to show my power. God is going to do the impossible. He is going to allow for the first miraculous conception in Scripture. Abraham's body, who's as good as dead, and Sarah's body, which is past childbearing years, they're going to come together, and a child is going to come from that union for those who should not be able to. God does the impossible. He gives them a son named Isaac, who we come to know as the heir of the promise, the one through whom God's going to do everything he promised in chapter 12. I find it interesting that God doesn't give them twins, triplets, quadruplets. God only gives them one miraculous conception, does not give them 38 children. You would think that if God wanted to guarantee that the Jewish people would become the Jewish people, he would do better than one. But he doesn't. He continues to leave Abraham and his descendants in a place where they are dependent upon him in a land that is not their own, where they are going to need his blessing for their continued existence, and with only one son to carry on the promise. And then God does the inexplicable. God asks something of Abraham that he doesn't ask of anybody else in Scripture. I'm sure when Abraham heard it, he thought, what did God say? God said, as we saw in our bumper video this morning, I want you to take that son Take him up to Mount Moriah, the place where eventually the temple will be built. And I want you to sacrifice that one and only son on the altar. And you begin to ask yourself the question, if you're reading the story, is that the plan? Is that what God requires of us? Is that why Abraham was chosen? That God's going to fix this through the sacrifice of a human being? through the sacrifice of the most precious human being on earth, the heir of the promise of the blessing of humanity. Is God going to sacrifice Isaac to pay for humanity's sin? Is that what this is all about? You know, in ancient Canaan, child sacrifice was not unheard of. I I won't go so far as to say it was common, because scholars argue about how common it was, but it was certainly in practice. 
Other cultures throughout the ancient Mediterranean world thought that sacrificing children in order to gain the favor of God was okay because kids were just property. Can't imagine living in that world. Thank God for Judeo-Christian morals. But I want to tell you, this was a moment of pure horror, I'm sure, for everybody involved. We find out in the story that Abraham takes Isaac up to Mount Moriah, but before he can sacrifice his son, God stays his hand. And God provides a sacrifice, a ram in the thicket, in order to have that sacrifice made that day on a hill that will eventually become Jerusalem. Why in the world would Abraham do that? I can imagine him leaving his homeland when God says to do so. We have missionaries that we know who have done that. I can imagine Abraham having faith to do other things in his life, but to sacrifice his son, the heir of the promise, that makes no sense. But thankfully, in the way the story is written, the writer of Hebrews gives us a picture into Abraham's mind. In chapter 11, verse 7 of Hebrews, it says, By faith Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son. Even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. So in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. Abraham believed as he went to Mount Moriah, Isaac's the heir of the promise. I believe God, God will give him right back to me. Now, you might think, as I have thought many a time, Abraham is a lunatic for trusting God to this level. I mean, this is, this is one of the most raw, disconcerting stories in the entire Bible. A, a religious zealot sacrificing his son on behalf of a, of a God who, who is asking that. But as Hebrews tells us, Abraham was expecting resurrection. I don't know that I could do this. I don't think you could either. But Abraham did have something that none of us had had. Abraham had already seen God do the impossible. You see, his 90-year-old wife had borne him a son. He knew God's power, and he knew what God could do. But of course, as we learn through the pages of Scripture, God does not sacrifice human beings. God does not allow us to sacrifice one another. God is a God of life, not of death. Human beings, as we talked about last week, are the crown jewel of creation. So why? Why this drama? Why this angst? Why this moment in time? And it goes back to the questions of why. Why did Abraham have to leave Haran? Why did Abraham have to wait 25 years to eventually get an heir why does God push him to the brink with his son? It seems that nobody else in Scripture gets pushed this far. Maybe you could argue some of the martyrs, but this is a, this is a pushing that Abraham endures. God says that it confirms that Abraham's the right one, but it troubles me. But it gets us back to our question. What is it that we're to do? What is it that God's going to require of human beings? Obviously, our blessing and our salvation and our future is dependent upon him. We don't have the capacity or the ability or the humility to fix our broken relationship, but, 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 but he will do that. What are we to do? And this is where the rubber hits the road for us in religious studies, if you will. 
Because in most religions of the world, most understandings even of Christianity, people think that in order to get right with God, we need to stop doing all the wrong things and start doing all the right things. In order to fix this broken relationship with God, we have to somehow become perfectly moral, unflinchingly ethical. Some of you today are sitting in this church because you came to church thinking, I need to become a better person. We have this idea that's inherent in our understanding of religion that if humans want to be right with God, they have to be more good, more moral, more ethical. We've got to get rid of sin in our lives. But is that the story from Genesis? Is that what God requires of Abraham and his descendants? Have you read chapter 2? There are some messed up things going on in Genesis. Abraham, Jacob, and his sons, there's some, there's some sin. There's some fallenness. They are far from moral, far from perfect, far from always doing the right thing. Just in Abraham and the three generations after them, in, in Genesis 11 through 50, we see lies and pride and deception and rampant insecurity, cruelty, favoritism, identity theft, murder, cowardice, and human trafficking. And that's through whom God is going to bless the world. Isn't this problematic? Genesis is not a story about morality. This book is not about how to become more ethical. Try to find more than one or two passages in Genesis 1 through 50 that tells you how to act. No, Genesis just tells you what people did and waits for you to make the judgment. Why does Abraham have to leave his homeland? Why does he have to wait? Why is he put through this ordeal with Isaac? What is it that Abraham is going to do to bless us? What is it that we need to do in order to help fix our broken relationship with God? We already read the answer. Abraham demonstrates the way back to God. We read it in chapter 15 and verse 6. And we learn something about God that if you look into it today, you will never, ever forget. Look at verse 50, chapter 15, verse 6. Abraham believed the Lord, and he, the Lord, credited to him as righteousness. Righteousness. That word that if you just turn it on its head and, and examine it means that the, the way to relationship with God, the way to stand in his presence, the way to remake what was broken, righteousness. Abraham's a righteous man. How? By being perfectly sinless? Perfectly moral? Abraham believed God. And his belief equaled righteousness. 
Abraham believed God, and his belief equals righteousness. Genesis is not a book about human beings meeting God and becoming holy and good. Yes, we're going to read chapter 4. We're going to read the New Testament. God wants us to be holy. God desires us to be good. God desires us to stop sinning. God desires us to, to, be, to be who he created us to be. But that is not the path back to relationship with God. The path back to relationship with God starts with belief. What got us in this predicament? You read the story. Did God really say? God lied. And Adam and Eve said, mm-hmm. God's holding out on us. God's not telling us the truth. God's keeping things from us. God doesn't want us to know good and evil because then we'll be the boss. They stopped trusting and believing their creator. And the path back for human beings is not to become sinless. Genesis 1 through 11 shows us human beings are sinners. We do bad stuff. You did bad stuff this week. I did bad stuff this week. I was not perfectly moral. I was not perfectly ethical. Neither were you. How can we have a relationship with God? How can we stand in the presence of God? By believing in him. By trusting in his word. Because that will be credited to us as righteousness. It is Abraham's belief, his extraordinary faith and trust in God, that is meant to bless each and every one of us. That's why when you go to church as an eight-year-old, you sing a song called Father Abraham. He's not our father because he was righteous. He's our father because he restored belief in God. He believed on a level that we could only hope to aspire to. And he trusted the word of the Lord when the Lord spoke. You say belief in God, trust in God, faith in God. Those are New Testament concepts. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. So salvation is dependent upon belief. That's New Testament. How about the, the big daddy of them all, John three sixteen? For God so loved the world, he gave his only, oh, I should say, one and only son, that whoever believes in him would not perish. Whoever believes in him would not perish. Whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Oh, you mean God never changes? You mean this isn't just a disjointed bunch of stories that teach us about morality? No. This story teaches us who God is. It teaches us why we're in the state that we're in. It teaches us how much he loves us and pursues us. And it teaches us that the way back to him is not through human perfection, though, boy, do we wish we could attain it. It's through belief and trust in our Father and Creator. Those who believe God are the descendants of Abraham. You may be here this morning and you hear about people having a relationship to God, but you may still be under the impression that 
The only way back to God or the only way to have a relationship with God is to be perfect. And then you go from Monday to Saturday and you realize you're not again. And then you come in here feeling all bad about yourself and you look around at all the perfect people. And you think, boy, do they have a relationship with God. They sing loud and worship. They raise their hands and they say things like, yeah, I'm blessed regularly. They must really know God. They must really have a corner on this, on this religion thing. But, but me, I, I, I mess up on Monday, and I compound it throughout the week, and then I, I get to Saturday night, like, do I even want to go to church tomorrow because I feel bad about who I am? Yeah, you've never been there. I've never been there. But we find a consistent theme And it starts in Genesis 3, and it makes its way through to Revelation. Human beings can't fix human beings. And we can, in honor and love for our Lord, make great effort through God's Holy Spirit to become better people. And I believe the more time we spend with the Lord and in his word and hearing from his spirit, God will change us. And we will become more moral, more ethical. That, that's part of the package. But the Bible makes it clear that we don't have the capacity, the ability, or the humility to be perfect or to restore our relationship to God. But we do have the capacity to believe his word. We do have the capacity to believe what he has said and to act upon it. And if you're here and you're going, Pastor Matt, I want this relationship that other people have with God, but I've I've always just equated it with having to be a good guy or a good gal. Let me tell you the very next step in your relationship with God. And this 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 is if you're a not yet Christian, a just been been become a Christian, or or been a Christian for 50 years. Here's your next step with God. Believe the next thing that He says to you. And act upon it. That's our story. You say, is God going to make me go preach out in the street this week? No, probably not. Maybe he's called one of us to that, and if if that's you, come talk to me before you do. (laughs) Is God going to make me sacrifice my son? No, no. In fact, we find out only one being in all of creation is willing to sacrifice their son for humanity's sin on Mount Moriah. God our Father with a willing son named Jesus. No. If you want a better relationship with God, either pray or read and say, God, what is that next step? What's the next thing you're saying to me? For some of you, it just might be coming to church and learning more about him. For some of you, it, it, might, it might be that God says, you know what, there's something in your life and it's not called sin in the Bible, but it's keeping you from happiness and peace. You need to let it go. For some of you, it might be that that opportunity to serve people and minister to people that you say, if I ever had time, boy, would I do that. And God keeps bringing it back to your mind, and you keep thinking, thank you, God, when when the conditions are perfect, I shall. We're all in a different place with God But I want to tell you this morning, the path back to full and free relationship with God is to believe what he has said. That 
is our part in reversing the curse. From the very first God-fearer to all of us today, relationship with God starts with his love, his blessing, and his relentless pursuit of us. But God then requires belief and faith. He can tell you what the next step is. Would you believe him, and would you take it? Let us pray. God, I want to thank you today that nobody in this place has to become perfect for us to have a relationship with you. God, you don't even require that we have more things in the good bucket than the bad to have a relationship with you. God, you have a way of knocking on our heart's door even in spite of so many times us pushing you out and pushing you away. But God, the story of the Bible is a story of a God who comes after human beings. Sometimes human beings who are just sad. Sometimes human beings who are the worst of sinners, as Paul called himself. Sometimes people who are mad at you for what you didn't do when we asked you. Sometimes human beings that got hurt by other human beings who claim to know you. God, we all have a reason to push you away. We all have a story that doesn't have a good ending. But Lord, you have provided a way for each one of us to have the proper ending to our story. It doesn't require us becoming perfect. It just requires us trusting you as we were created to do. And I pray for nothing else this morning in this place than each and every one of us take one step of obedience, one step of faith toward you that when you speak, we would listen and that we would believe and that we would act. Here at Victory Life, we always end our services with a time of prayer. We have people who come up here. We call them elders. They are leaders in the church. You can read about the role of elders in 1 Timothy and Titus. We have prayer people, folks who have the gift of what's called intercession to pray for others. They're going to come and stand at this altar today. And they're here for you. If you want to take that next step of obedience to God, you want to set out from Haran, you want to believe him in spite of life circumstances, you want to see him in your life for real, they want to pray for you. Want to pray for you. But for each and every one of you, whether you want to come pray at this altar today, whether you want to come pray with an individual today, or whether you want to pray in your seat today, I ask you in the next few minutes to just be reverent before the Lord. Whether you feel like you're some longtime great Christian or whether you feel like you don't know what you're doing in this life, and just say, God, bring across my mind's eye 
the next step of obedience to you because I want a relationship with you and I want to be the person that I was created to be. Let's pray for a few minutes together.